Hey everybody, it's Tommy Canale and welcome back to Before the Lights podcast. The show to find out how those in sports, music, and entertainment made their mark. He has won six Chicago Midwest Emmy Awards for feature stories on Chicago sports. The host of the White Sox pre and post game live, a reporter and anchor on NBC Sports Chicago. He's the host of the White Sox Talk podcast and regarded as one of the most skilled and insightful reporters in his field. Please welcome to the show, Chuck Garfine. Chuck, welcome to Before the Lights. Oh, it is great to be on with you. I feel the lights. They're on me. (laughs) They are on you. And we're probably going to dim and open some lights that you may have forgotten about as well. We're going to rewind time. And let's start here. What sports did you play as a child? Oh, everything. Everything and anything. Baseball was number one. But if there was a ball, bring it on. Like I wanted to play sports all the time. And I did. I went to a... Uh, a summer camp in uh, the summer for a couple of years, and there were no girls, just boys, and just sports. And I was in heaven. <laughs> so you and I were probably in the same era where we would go outside and play in the yards, make up baseball games, football games, basketball games. It didn't matter the street. We just played. Yeah. And if there were no friends around, I would just literally imagine a baseball game in my head throw a baseball against a garage, our garage. And uh, I did ruin the garage a few times by (laughs) denting it. My dad wasn't very happy with me, but yeah, I would just, I would put a a world series game or any white Sox game in my head and create it from thin air because I just could not get enough of sports. And, you know, if, if I could play, if I could play sports from the moment I woke up to the moment I went to bed, I was a happy kid. So listeners, Chuck and I are both Illinois natives. He still lives in Illinois. I live in Las Vegas now. Who are some of your Chicago heroes looking up as a child? I was lucky. Now, at the time growing up, the teams in Chicago weren't great, but I had some amazing, amazing players, starting with Walter Payton. Mm. I idolized the man. Uh, The Bears were not a very good team, but we had Walter Payton. And after that, It was Michael Jordan. He gets drafted in 84. I'm 13 years old. And the the Bulls weren't good for a while. It was like Michael and his Jordan heirs for about five, six years. Right. Finally, in 91, they won a title. But I would basically say it was those two guys. And then my favorite White Sox player was a guy named Chet Lemon. I remember Chet Lemon. Yeah, but if you're not like a diehard Sox fan from the 70s, you have no idea who Chet Lemon is or was. And uh, he was... Uh, Jersey number 44. The games were played on channel 44. He played center field. He played with a flair. Uh, White Sox games were uh, not exactly, uh, how do I say it? They were not exactly televised in high def. It was uh, channel 44 seemed to be, have a grainy reception. This was before cable. And so uh, watching White Sox games wasn't exactly easy, but when Chet Lemon took the field, uh, he was as clear as day and the way that he played the game, uh, there was a little bit of a bravado about him. He was very charismatic and that shot through my TV set right into uh, my heart. And so from that moment on, Chet Lemon's been <laughs> number one in my heart, even though if you looked at his stats, you'd be thinking, Wait, why is Chet Lemon your favorite White Sox player of all time? He's nowhere near the Hall of Fame, but he's in my personal Hall of Fame. 
I'm going to have to look. I have some DVDs of old White Sox games from the 60s and 70s. I know one of them is Thurman Munson's last game when he was at Comiskey Park. And I know I have some of those. I got to look back. I'm sure Chet's in one of those, those games that I have that it's been transferred over. I'm going to check that out. Chuck, what about Ray Myers, DePaul Blue Demons? You want me to go an hour on this? I will. <laughs> I mean, that was the team, but that was, that was what I, besides the Sox, it was the Blue Demons for me. Yeah, this was the heyday for DePaul. I mean, Mark Aguirre and Terry Cummings, Skip Dillard, Clyde Bradshaw. I mean, there's so many great players. Dallas Comagies, and they would be on Channel 9 in Chicago, which was not grainy like Channel 44, and you could watch a lot of their games. And they were they were the best team, really, in mm-hmm. Chicago, them and the Chicago Sting, which was a soccer team. And by the way, so I did a story on this, and, and we can get to it, but uh, when I came back to work in Chicago after working all over the country as a sportscaster for about 10 years before that, I had all these Chicago sports uh, teams and stories that I wanted to tell. And one of them was about the Chicago Sting. And like, this is how big the Chicago Sting were back in 1979, 1980, 81 in Chicago. There was an afternoon game at Wrigley Field in 1981 between the Cubs and the Cardinals. Wrigley Field, day baseball, during the week, there were three or 4,000 fans at this game. Wow. That night, the Chicago Sting played a soccer game against the San Diego Soccers at Old Comiskey Park. Do you want to guess how many fans were at that game? Don't tell me it was a sellout. I don't know if it was technically a sellout, but it was over 40,000 fans. So uh, Chicago sports were like kind of upside down or right side up, depending on what you liked back then. Uh, That's where things were at. And so I got to tell that story. I interviewed all these players from that time. Uh, It was like that little boy in me living out a childhood dream, getting to talk to guys like Rudy Glenn and, um, uh, Willie Roy, who was the head coach. So it was, uh, that was a, that's a highlight for me. Chuck, what was the moment for you when you decided that you wanted to get into the field of media and broadcasting? I didn't know it at the time, but when I was eight or nine years old, I had, uh, I was creating a, <laughs> I'm really digging in the weeds here. <laughs> uh, we're turning lights on. Yeah. The lights are way <laughs> on. So here we go. When I was like eight years old, I didn't realize at the time, but I was starting out my broadcasting career by creating my own radio station in a, into a tape recorder. And I was doing the sports and I wasn't doing this because I was like, oh, I want to be a sportscaster one day. It was just because I was just so immersed in sports. And when you are immersed in sports, you're not just watching the sports, but you're watching sports broadcasting. And I grew up listening to Harry Carey call White Sox games and watching the local sports casts in Chicago. So that all spoke to me. And so I would just do these sports casts. And I'm now wondering, I wonder if any of these tapes exist. I'm sure they do not. <laughs> I wish they did, actually. And I would Actually, I'd probably burn them. I don't know if I'd want to get these out. Um, but anyway, and that's kind of how it started subconsciously, consciously. You know, you need breaks along the way or just a lot of luck. How about this? For luck, I'm 14 years old. I'm going to my high school orientation at Homewood Flossmoor High School in the south suburbs of Chicago. It's a public school. Mm -hmm. And I find out there's a radio station 
at the high school. The highest powered high school radio station in the country is in my small little suburb of Chicago. They have a four-year broadcasting curriculum. You can do sports casts. You can do play-by-play. You can disc jockey. You're going to put together a documentary in high school. Sign me up. Right. So I got off to an incredible start in this career just because of luck, just because of where I grew up. And it just spoke to me, didn't just speak to me. It was like with exclamation points, like this is for you if you want to do it. And I was all in from the beginning. How do you go from Homewood Flossmore High School in Illinois to USC in Southern California? Great question. Uh, that's a, uh, I, I would say the simplest answer is this, that I, I had a lot of ambition in, in high school. And it was going to carry me a long way. And USC, LA, just kind of, I'd been there once before. Uh, my cousin lived in LA and I visited him. And, you know, I just heard about USC's, uh, you know, the school itself. And obviously I like their sports. And incidentally, I'm wearing a maroon yeah, you are. <laughs> shirt. Kind of goes <laughs> along with USC colors. I don't wear this very often, but I just noticed that. And, you know, and I, I got in. And I was also interested in the film industry, screenwriting, directing. And so it was kind of like my plan B. I was going to go to school there and I was going to come back. And I I already had this in my mind, like literally as I was going to school there as a freshman, I was going to come back and intern wherever I could in broadcasting in Chicago, but spend the time there learning about the, the film industry. And I had met a lot of people in it that I went to school with. And so at some point I'd have to make a decision. And by the time I was, uh, I was graduating from college, I knew that I didn't want to, the thing about screenwriting, directing the whole Hollywood industry, there was way too much out of your control. Mm. If you were going to succeed in it, there's way too much just randomness. I didn't like that, that I wouldn't want to be, you know, feeling like I was going to spending 20, I didn't want to spend potentially 10, 20, 30 years for a break. And some of it, even because some of the most talented people in Hollywood don't get that break or it takes forever for them to get it. Sportscasting, I felt like, even though I was even you know more interested in it, the big thing for me was I felt like the cream does rise to the top. I felt like I could have a little more control, even though it was going to take a long time to get there. I felt like if, if I really worked hard, the breaks would come from me. And that's why I chose sportscasting over um, filmmaking, but uh, it all started by, you know, at the high school and the, the college years to kind of get me to that point. Your first on-air sports casting came at WPBN TV in Traverse City, Michigan. What do you remember about that first time being on air? Well, I can tell you this, that I didn't just show up in Traverse City. That took a lot of calculating on my part too, because okay. if you want to get into broadcasting, you can't just like show up at, you know, there's, there's, you can't just like send a tape, like where to, where to get a tape? How do you make a tape? Uh, there's, and it's, there's not like a, how do I say it? Like a policy manual. There's no instructions on how to break in. You got to, you know, be crafty and find your way. And even though I went to USC, I didn't major in broadcasting. I didn't have a tape. So I graduated from college. When I say a tape, if you're over the, if you're under the age of <laughs> 50. You're like, what's a tape? It's a uh, video people. I, I didn't have a reel. I didn't have a reel. I didn't have a link to send to anybody. <laughs> so I had randomly, 
randomly heard about a local cable access channel in Aspen, Colorado. And I called there and I said, are you guys looking for a sportscaster? Because I needed to get on the air somehow. And they said, well, we've never had a sportscaster. And I said, well, I will work for you for free. I just need to get a tape together. I didn't tell them like, because I want to, you know, get a job somewhere right. else. So he's like, sure. So I went out there. I had other jobs to get, you know, to pay the bills, but once a week I would do a sports cast. And by the way, I was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I was awful. But you thought you were fantastic at the time. No, it was terrible. It was terrible. <laughs> the key, when you are, you are watching sportscasters and it looks easy, here's the secret. Are you ready for the secret? Yes. The secret is you got to make it look easy because mm. it's not. We make it look easy. There's a lot going on with it. But anyway, um, it gets e- and it gets easier. I'll say that. But I realized when I was doing it, boy, this is going to be a lot tougher than I thought it, it was going to be. So um, to get to Traverse City, I had to send tapes and tapes and tapes and tapes for a year. Uh, wow. I must have, I must have sent out a hundred tapes all over the country. And I only had one nibble and it was in Rockford, Illinois. And I was like, Oh, if I can only just get to Rockford, <laughs> you're so close to Chicago. Right. And I, and uh, I didn't get it. And then finally, this is a little secret. I tell the people and it's not so much a secret anymore. Cause you know, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to hide it. I just feel like people should take advantage of this if they can. And it doesn't have to be just in sports casting. But if you apply for a job, like I heard about a job in Springfield, Illinois, and I was kind of late to the game figuring out that this job was available. So I reached out to, before I sent a tape, I reached out to this station in Springfield and I asked them, hey, are you guys still looking for a sportscaster? And they go, no, we, we already filled it. Now, 99% of the time, you say, oh, that's too bad. That stinks. And you hang up. But then I had this idea in my mind to ask a follow-up question. And sometimes the follow-up question is the best question because you get the best answer. And here's the follow-up question. Oh, where did this person come from? Because now all of a sudden there's a vacancy somewhere else. Yes. So. This person came from Traverse City, Michigan. His name was Scott Hansen, the host of NFL Red Zone. It's a very small business we're in, by the way. Yes. So I called up the station in Traverse City. I called the two of them that were there. And the first one that I called was the one. And I said, hey, um, you guys looking for a sportscaster? And they said, yeah, we just found out this guy's leaving. One thing leads to another. I had maybe had a leg up on the competition and I got the job. So that's what brought me to Traverse City. That was, a, you know, I didn't even ask your question. You asked me questions about my career. I'm going to go into a million different directions. No, I love, so I love like, the story. So what was it like doing my first sports cast? Something close to Albert Brooks in the movie Broadcast News when he's anchoring uh, on the weekends uh, or, or gets an opportunity to anchor one weekend night and he's just sweating through his suit. I didn't sweat through my suit, but I was just extremely nervous. I'd never read off a teleprompter before. I'd never edited uh, a sports cast before. You're basically doing it on your own. So, um, uh, and again, it was, it also hammered home that boy, I have a long way to go to get good at this. You've had stops along the way at Pennsylvania, New York, but you're also one of the original anchors of ESPN news. 
What was it like, Chuck, getting that show off the ground and getting it started? Yeah. So I went from Traverse City, Michigan. I was there for a year and a half to ESPN. That was a big jump. I was 24, 25 years old. Wow. And I was not ready. I, I went from doing three and four minute sports casts in Traverse City, Michigan to solo anchoring hour or no three hour long shifts at ESPN news five days a week. So I was uh, <laughs> extremely intimidated. And actually the first thing I did on the air uh, at ESPN was a 6 30 PM Eastern sports center with uh, Brett Haber, one of the uh, classic anchors at ESPN because ESPN news hadn't gone off the ground yet. So I went from doing sports casts in Traverse city, Michigan to sports center in a year and a half. Um, was I ready? No way, but I was given an opportunity. I felt like a guy who was uh, in the minor leagues an opening was created. And even though I was not ready, I went from like single a all the way to the majors. And so uh, that was, uh, I learned a ton but I would uh, be lying to you if I said, oh, yeah, I was ready for that moment because I wasn't. You're solo anchoring by yourself. Three hours. By myself. Three hours a day, wow. five days a week, uh, right in the middle of the day with all the bosses watching me, by the way. <laughs> all the bosses are in the office on the TV going, boy, uh, I don't know if Chuck Garfine's long for ESPN. <laughs> Chuck, how did you end up then getting back to NBC Sports Chicago and finally getting back home? Yeah, so... Um, that's another good story. And, you know, I guess what I've learned is that when you're in a business long enough, you, there are the breaks, there's the randomness of it all. Mm -hmm. And uh, kind of things happen and it kind of goes back to ESPN. So I'm working in Denver, Colorado at Fox sports net, the affiliate there. And uh, we were doing um, rock me, the Rockies, we had the avalanche and the nuggets on our air. And the story is, is that I was doing a story on the Hanson brothers from Slapshot, the old oh, hockey yeah. movie. Yeah. Yeah. I got to spend like a day or two with them in Vancouver. And so I, I I'd come back, I was editing it and I needed some footage of them and they had made a public appearance in Philadelphia. Okay. So you asked me, how did I get to Chicago? This is kind of crazy because I did a story on the Hanson brothers. So I, called the Comcast. So NBC sports used to be called Comcast Sportsnet, mm. And at the time I called up Comcast Sportsnet in Philadelphia. And I said, Hey, I, this is Chuck Garfine. I work for Fox Sportsnet in Denver. Were you guys covering this event at a Philadelphia phantom hockey game? It was an AHL game that the uh, Hanson brothers made a public appearance at. Were you there by any chance? And they're like, yeah, we were there. Let me, let me check. Cause I need some footage of it. And this other guy gets on the phone and he goes, is this Chuck Garfine? He used to work at ESPN. And I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Who's this? He says, well, you may not remember me, but uh, my name is Joe Riley. I used to operate your teleprompter. I was a production assistant at ESPN when you were at ESPN News. I'm like, oh, hey, Joe, how you doing? It's been a long time. <laughs> and he says, you're from Chicago, right? And I said, yeah. He says, well, we're going to start Comcast Sportsnet in Chicago. I'm actually going to go there. I'll be the assistant news director. If you're interested in potentially working there, you should send a tape. And sure enough, one thing Let's leads to another. 
I got a job at Comcast Sportsnet and Joe eventually became the news director. He was my boss. So the goes full circle. And also everybody listening, never burn a bridge, never burn a bridge. Anyone who works above you, below you, beside you, be friends with them or friendly with them because you never, ever know. I mean, you should always just be friendly with people, but you never know who's going to be your boss one day. And he became my boss. That's exactly right. You almost answered a question I was thinking of when you were talking is the amount of dedication and commitment you had to your industry and to your field to keep pushing forward. Cause I'm sure your goal was to get back to Chicago. It was, it was, but I also knew that there was a very good chance it would never happen mm. it, it, because for instance, along the way, before I got that job to come back to Chicago, you know, a, a job would open up once every few years. So one job, I mean, think about like, how many lawyers are there in Chicago? Uh, 10,000. I don't even know what the number is. It's massive. Right. How many TV sportscasters are there? There's like 10. So when one becomes available, you know, it, there was a lot of competition to get there. So I knew, even though I wanted to get there, I wasn't sure if it would ever happen. I didn't want to think too much about it. Um, and even though I was, I was doing fine working in other markets, the city, the history with their sports were not embedded in like my, my DNA and my soul, like they were in Chicago. So I knew that if I got a chance, I'd have a pretty good chance to stick around. And so uh, eventually what happened, what was good with Comcast Sportsnet, which again, again, became NBC Sports Chicago, they were hiring eight anchors at the same time or eight reporters. This was the golden opportunity for me. If, if there's ever a time to have a, the best chance to break into the market in Chicago, this was it. And it, fortunately for myself, it happened. How many total years did it take you to get back after leaving home with Flossmore? Oh, leaving home with Flossmore. Okay. Yeah. From the so time you left was... there to get back to NBC, how many years was that? Yeah. Hold on. I got to do the math. Uh, <laughs> let's see. Uh, it took um, 15 years. Yeah. 15 years. And now I've been back for 18, which is unbelievable. It's flown by. I cannot believe I've been working in Chicago for 18 years. So as you said, you didn't think it would happen, but for people out there that may be trying to pursue a goal or a dream, you never know when that break might happen. So as you said, never burn a bridge. Never. No, no, (laughs) you don't. I mean, and what I also find is that people like to work with people that are likable, Mm -hmm. you know, and, and there's a cause and effect with everything that we do in life. And the way you talk to people, something you might do on the air or whatever it might be, what you put out there in the world comes back to you in some certain way. And, you know, that's another thing that I've learned. Um, I I was fortunately uh, raised by great parents, great family. So I didn't have to really, really work hard at this. They kind of taught me lessons about how to treat people. And um, but I I have found that, you know, if you are going to, you know, don't get in your own way. (laughs) And, uh, and, you know, have some patience and trust that if you work hard, eventually good things will happen for you. The host of the White Sox pre and post game live with Ozzie Guillen and Frank Thomas. How much fun is it working with them? And the reason I'm asking is as a MLB single team package holder, we don't get to see that. And it drives me nuts that I can't see the pre and post game. You're not alone. And I know, you know, Major League Baseball has had some uh, labor issues to say the least, <laughs> right. one thing they need to fix is that. 
If you are a baseball fan, let baseball fans be baseball fans. Give them everything. Mm -hmm. There should be no limitations, certainly nowadays, with the access and the technology that is out there. Uh, it's easier for easier to say this than do it. There's a lot of other things that go into play with what you're talking about. But, yeah, they do not make it very easy for people out of Chicago. I would love it for you to be able to easily watch our pre and post game shows and hear what we're saying when we kind of slide into the broadcast. Right. Uh, with Jason Manetti and Steve Stone, but um, it is a blast. I mean, I, I still can't believe it. Like I grew up watching Ozzy Guillen play shortstop for the White Sox. Then he manages the White Sox to the World Series. Frank Thomas is the greatest player in the history of the franchise, and I'm doing shows with them. Uh, there's a lot of pinch me moments that I have in my career, and I do it all year long with them. Feel the dreams. Dyersville, mm -hmm. you and Ozzy do a road trip there. And then weren't yeah. you there when the storm rolled in the night before? Yeah. Yeah, how did you know that? Research and I research, was, and I'm a big Sox fan. I think I remember seeing some tweets and some uh, stuff out there, and then I'm watching the broadcast. They talked about the storm that rolled in. I'm like, wait a minute. I think uh, Chuck and Ozzy were there the night before when that storm hit. Yeah. So talk about luck, Major League Baseball. If they had scheduled that game for one day earlier. We're talking about a monsoon that swept through that field, that park, uh, just 24 hours earlier. So we were there because we were doing a pre and post game show that day. So the White Sox were playing in the Minnesota, I think. So we were like, well, you know what? Fox is getting the game. And so let's show that we're there. So the day before we were doing a pre and post game show, we arrived there. We're about to set everything up. And then all of a sudden you look out in the distance and, oh, there was a storm of brewing. So we all had to race into these trailers and it went on for like two hours. It was massive. Like they, they literally told everyone you have got to seek shelter. And we had a pregame show that was literally at this point, after two hours of waiting, we were supposed to be live in like 40 minutes. And once the storm passed, we raced back to the set. There was a massive, uh, contingency plan that we're, they were just going to do a show from Chicago uh, and we weren't even going to be on the air, but thanks to so many of the people behind the scenes at NBC sports, Chicago at the last minute, I'd say five minutes before we hit air, uh, we got the, the green light and we did our pregame show uh, and everyone at home would have no idea what it took and what happened. But I mean, could you imagine like we have such amazing memories of Tim Anderson hitting that walk off home run, well, 24 hours earlier, <laughs> that would have been, and the other thing is like you know, to have all those people there with the, I mean, when we were there, there was like a hundred people on the entire, uh, land that was, you know, if they, they would add like 20,000 people with that. It would have been like Woodstock with mud everywhere than <laughs> a mess. So, uh, Fox and MLB uh, had a, a big stroke of luck getting that game in 2013, you did a four part Chicago bears doc series. How long you been waiting to do that before you actually got it done? Well, I wasn't really waiting. Wasn't, I wasn't like consciously waiting to do that. Uh, it just kind of happened organically. And that is a little bit where like the filmmaker in me came in. You know, it was the off season from the White Sox. And, you know, we wanted to do, I wanted to do, do this documentary on these uh, classic games and interview the, the people that were involved in it. And like we did stories like the Fog Bowl, which is just, uh, 
that doesn't get the do. Like it, everyone, <laughs> if, you're, if you're not familiar with the Fog Bowl, imagine there being a humongous NFL playoff game. It was the Bears against the Eagles. It's at Soldier Field and talk about the weather. And then all of a sudden, a massive, what do you want to call it? Dense fog engulfs the city of Chicago where you cannot see right in front of your face. And that is what happened. And they did not cancel the game. Mm-mm. The Bears and Eagles continued to play football, even though nobody could see what was going on. The announcers couldn't broadcast the game. I don't know how they continued to play. Nowadays, they, there'd be too much at stake insurance-wise. They'd be like, yeah, we're going to cancel this for the moment and wait. <laughs> you're right, you're right. We can't, have like, we can't have our best players just like lose, you know, their bodies, they break bones. So anyway, the Bulls, uh, the Bulls, the Bears won the game. I did a documentary on that. Um, what else? Did I, and we had Bill Curtis, Bill, mm. the Bill Curtis. It's a big Chicago announcing legend. And if you're not from Chicago, the guy who narrates the beginning, middle and end of the TV movie, not TV movie, of the movie Anchorman, that is the voice. He's like the voice of God. He announced this four-part series looking back at the Chicago bears. And it was uh, definitely a career highlight for me. One of the craziest games I remember is a Monday night game when Harbaugh was the quarterback against the jets and it goes into overtime and he's got a big chunk of mud in the corner of his face mask. And they were out of the game. Like in the last two minutes, it just goes craziness. And somehow they pulled that out. I I remember that when you were talking about wild games, like I remember that jets Monday night game that they shouldn't have won, but they did. All right. So I happen to be, interning at the NBC affiliate in Chicago at that time. And I was fortunate, extremely lucky enough to be given a field pass for that game. It was not Jim Harbaugh. It was Cap Boso. Cap Boso. tight end who dug his helmet into the turf and came up and the turf was all over his helmet. Yes. Um, You know, and that's part of like how, you know, I've been able to live out this nine-year-old's dream because that was another experience where like I grew up watching Mark Gian Greco, who was an icon, an idol of mine as a local sportscaster in Chicago. And I got to intern for him when he was at the NBC affiliate in Chicago and watch how he, you know, not just watched how he did sportscasts, but just how he carried himself what you know, how he put together things, his creative mind. And, you know, as I've gone on, I've, I really did a lot of not a lot of talking. I did a lot of watching and listening and uh, that being amongst him and watching how he covered sports really uh, has helped me along the way. But yeah, I, that bears jets Monday night football game. I think that was like 1993 or something like that. That's uh, I know, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. Any future plans on doing doc series, maybe on the white Sox? I don't know. Okay. That's a good point. I don't know. Uh, there is a, a wealth of uh, material to go on. Um, you got my uh, my mind working here. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I can think of about uh, a ten series, a ten docu series on just games alone and events. Oh, I know, I know. And we do a thing on our podcast. Uh, I host a the White Sox Talk podcast, and one thing I like to do they're almost like mini documentaries, but not exactly. Where it's called distant replay back at classic White Sox games. And we just, we watch the whole game from start to finish. And then we just go nuts doing research. We'll bring on like random people 
to talk about who are a part of the game. Like my, one of my favorites is the Andy Hawkins, no hitter. All right. Here's the Andy Hawkins, no hitter, everyone. It's 1990. The final year, the White Sox are playing at Comiskey Park. They're playing the Yankees. Andy Hawkins throws a no hitter against the White Sox. Okay. Now, and he loses. Mm -hmm. So that alone is crazy. And usually when you lose a no hitter, you lose one to nothing, maybe two, nothing. The New York Yankees lost to the White Sox throwing a no hitter. The final score was four to nothing. (laughs) Craziness ensued. And we had Andy Hawkins on the podcast to talk about it. But, you know, the first year that I worked in Chicago, the Sox happened to win the World Series, which was a stroke of luck and really put me on this White Sox train because, uh, you know, I was not I was covering Cubs games. I was covering everything. But I, I they did know that I grew up a White Sox fan. And so I you know, started covering the team. And you talked about documentaries. I was doing many documentaries that year, looking back at every single White Sox team that had ever made the playoffs and looked at, uh, you know, told that story. If this was the New York Yankees, there would be <laughs> like a hundred of them. For, unfortunately for the White Sox, there were like six or five. But I look back at, you know, them winning the World Series in, uh, where's my head, 1917, or was it 1919? Um, 1918, where's my brain? Uh, 1959. Uh, 1993, uh, 2000. So I look back, I, I, I'm definitely uh, someone who appreciates history, especially Chicago sports history. And so I think there might be a documentary in my future for the White Sox. I don't know. We'll see. Love it. Listeners, go to the show notes. I'm going to put a link to the White Sox Talk podcast. If you're not listening to it or you haven't subscribed, you need to. It started back in 2016. Chuck, is there a, a interview of a former player that you still want to get on the White Sox Talk podcast? Oh, yes. And who would that be? So this former player did not ever make the major leagues. Mm. He only made it to Birmingham. His name is Michael Jordan. Ah. That would be nice. That would be really nice. But I do have a great Michael Jordan interview story. You want to hear it? Yes. So I am uh, 18 years old. I'm in high school. And again, I'm kind of ambitious. I'm just trying to find broadcasting jobs anywhere. And I found something, I believe it might've been in like the one ads, the classified ads. They were, this radio network was looking for an intern. I never even heard of this radio network. I got an opportunity to work for them for like 20 bucks. And my job was to go into a locker room and just get sound, just hit record, stick your microphone near an athlete's face and bring this sound back to the producer who was at home that day. I don't know what the whole story was. So they assigned me to a bulls Cavs game, which was uh, 1989. And this is a game that people don't not don't seem to remember about bulls history. Remember when Michael Jordan hits the game winning shot over Craig Elo, to yes. win the series, the first series of uh, that postseason, everyone remembers that. What is forgotten is what happened before that. The Cleveland Cavaliers had a dynasty in the making. They had Mark Price, he had Ron Harper, Brad Doherty, Larry Nance. They were loaded. Hot Rod Williams, Mike Fratello was there. No, Lenny Wilkins was their head coach. They had beaten the Bulls five straight times that year. They won the division. This is the last game of the regular season. By the way, I'm going to get to the Michael Jordan story in a second. They're going to they're going to win the division. The 
Cavs have nothing to play for in this final regular season game. It's at Chicago Stadium. The Cavs rest all of their starters. The Bulls play all of theirs. It's Jordan. It's Pippen. It's Horace Grant. It's Bill Cartwright. And they still couldn't beat the Cavs. They went 0-6 against the Cleveland Cavaliers that year. So young Chuck Garfine has to go into the Bulls locker room <laughs> to get some sound. <laughs> All right, I've never been in a locker room before. And who do I want to talk to? Oh, I talk to. Who do I want to just get sound of? Michael Jordan. I walk into this locker room, crowded locker room at Old Chicago Stadium. And what happens? Michael Jordan is already dressed. He walks straight out. He's not talking to reporters. He's going to talk to a reporter. He's going to talk to me. Did you chase <laughs> so him down? I, so I abandoned ship. I'm supposed <laughs> to get sound from everybody else. Just I'm supposed to get sound, period. I'm like, no, I want to get sound from Michael Jordan. So there uh, at Old Chicago Stadium, you were in this like locker room. And you would walk up the steps. It was, the locker room was below the court. I walked up the steps following Michael. I'm the only one following him. Yes, he, he then is walking across the court at Old Chicago Stadium. There's no one there in the stadium but me and him on the court. And I'm peppering him with the worst possible questions known to man. And he's not pushing me aside. He's giving me pleasant 15-second answers. I don't remember any of my questions. I don't remember any of his answers, but his answers were much better than my questions. But I got sound with Michael Jordan. And it is uh, my first interview is uh, been all downhill from there. My first interview was with Michael Jordan. <laughs> you still have the tape? No, no, I do not have the tape. It's so it's terrible that I don't have that tape. That would have been crazy to still have that. I know. Oh, so by the way, so then the Bulls went on and beat the Cavs in the playoffs on that shot by, uh, by Jordan over Elo. And there was no dynasty for the Cleveland Cavaliers. Jordan basically took it from him. This is a question I got to know the answer to. How does Chuck Garfine end up driving Eloy Jimenez to Wrigley Field for a game? This is another one that like <laughs> the stars aligned, the stars aligned. So I had started doing these interviews, I would say back in 2005, where I would pick up an athlete at their house. The first one I did it with was Aaron Rowan of the White Sox. I pick him up at his house and I just drive him. It was, I called it driving to work. Like I just, I'm driving him to work and we're just talking from the moment that I ring his doorbell get in the car to when they, I basically walk with them to the clubhouse and I say goodbye. Uh, so I did that with him. I did it with Tommy Harris, former Chicago Bears uh, player. And I hadn't done it in a while. I'm like, let's do it with Aloy Jimenez. And because this was going to be his first game ever at Wrigley Field, he was a, a Cubs prospect traded to the White Sox. It was a big deal. So uh, I asked him if he would be up for it. Um, and uh, he, he, he was in. So what did we do? We picked him up at guaranteed rate field and drove him to Wrigley field <laughs> for his first game against the Cubs. And it was great. He's a, an amazing person, amazing athlete. Uh, he likes the camera and we had a great time talking about anything and everything on the drive there. I dropped him off at Wrigley. The story could have ended there and I would be a happy man. What happens? Well, the game happens. It comes down to the ninth <laughs> inning the Cubs are leading the White Sox. Aloy Jimenez comes to the plate. 
he hits the game winning home run. And I remember I was doing sideline reporting that day. They broadcasted. We, we, we alternated between Cubs broadcasts and White Sox broadcasts. So this is when the Cubs were on our channel. So we would have like the Cubs broadcasters do one game, the Sox broadcasters do another. So the game was a Cubs broadcast, but I was sideline reporting and Len Casper and Jim Deshays, Cubs broadcasters were calling the game. And at the end, they said something on the air, like Chuck, you cannot allow, we were not going to allow you to drive Aloy Jimenez to Wrigley Field ever again. <laughs> and you should drive him every time. <laughs> I, I still get tweets from people like, can you drive Aloy Jimenez to the playoffs? Chuck, do you think opening day, I know we're in the middle of a lockout this year, but do you think opening day should be a national holiday? Oh, man. I mean, when you say a national holiday, like everyone gets off of work? Yes. Okay, you're asking me this as a diehard baseball fan. The answer is yes. Correct. But will it ever happen? No. If it was ever going to happen, it was going to happen like in the 1940s and 50s and before when it really was you know, number one and, you know, football is number one right now. It's been that way for a long time, but they're not going to make, you know, a Sunday, a national holiday. Um, or maybe they, maybe they would, I don't know, but for baseball. Yeah. It's, you know, what it is, it's my national holiday. Like I don't that. need the whole country to call it a holiday, but yeah, I, I mean, everyone be off. That's fine. But you know, Right now, baseball has other fish to fry, and it's right. not. Uh, can we have this be our national holiday right now? They'd be like national holiday. This, yeah, exactly. <laughs> when you look back at your career to date, what do you take from it the most that you cherish? Uh, take from it the most, you know, that I'm living out my dream. That I I still can't believe I'm able to do this for a living, you know. Um, and I do. I will never take it for granted ever, ever ever. Every day I wake up uh, thankful that I have this and I get to do this. But another part of it is that, you know, I've never been satisfied. And I think in this industry, I can just speak for the industry that I'm in, as I was coming, as I was going through it and trying to move up, some people were dissatisfied with where they were at. And that is totally fine. Totally fine to be satisfied with where you're at. I am not like that. I always want to get better and better and better. So even like being on with you, I want to be at my best. I want to, you know, do the best that I can for you because you asked me to do this. And, you know, tomorrow I'm going to be working and I want that to be a great day. And I want to work just as hard, if not more than I was when I was in Traverse city, you know, 25 years ago. So um, I'm a big Bruce Springsteen fan. And one of my favorite songs is prove it all night. And I want to prove it every day. And that's what I do. And uh, by doing that, I think in the long run, it helps. And so um, if that answers your question, uh, there, there's my answer. <laughs> it does. Chuck, looking back, and this may not be White Sox, but what's your maybe favorite memory of your career to where you're at today? Wow. Favorite memory. It's probably the White Sox winning the World Series in 2005. That'll be tough to beat. Mm. Um, you know, I got getting to be there. You know, my grandfather grew up. He was probably a White Sox and a Cubs fan. He was a Chicago sports fan. He had passed away in May of that year. He didn't get to experience it. I mean, here's somebody who, like, came to this country in, I think it was 1928 and 
never saw the White Sox win a World Series from 1928 to 2005. And the year that I get back to Chicago, they win the World Series finally. And, you know, it's, it's baseball is a lot about family. And I'm, you know, I thought about my grandfather that day. He never got to experience it. So uh, there's a lot of those stories, tons of those stories uh, of White Sox fans who never got to experience it. So, uh, you know, when you don't win a World Series for 88 years and it happens, um, that's monumental. I believe it was 88. Oh, I'm, this is terrible. I forgot the number. You know what? This is good that I forgot the number. That number was like in, embedded in me for years and years. Now I forgot the number, how long the drought was, but it was eight decades. And, um, you know, so, and I'm looking forward to the next, looking forward to the next world series, but, uh, boy, that that's, that's going to be tough to beat. I was playing golf last summer with a friend of mine. And he said, what's your favorite sports team of all time? I said, Chicago white Sox." He said, okay, hmm. something happens to you today. What living person would you like to do your eulogy from the White Sox? My answer. Oh, don't ask me that. Who do I want to do my eulogy? My answer was easy. I didn't even hesitate. I said, it's got to be Ozzy. He started laughing. He goes, that's a perfect person to do a eulogy. So do you have anybody off the top of your head? Oh, my goodness. No, I don't. <laughs> I don't. I mean, if it's Ozzy, like that's a party, you know? Right. He'll, he'll, he'll provide, you know, some humor some perspective, uh, and, and love. Cause he, he is a loving, loving person. Uh, yeah, I don't know. Ozzy's a good one. Ozzy's a really good one. You, I mean, yeah. Frank Thomas, that'd be a pretty good one. Only the greatest white Sox player of all time. Um, and then, uh, Nancy Faust can play na 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 na. Hey, hey, kiss him goodbye. <laughs> By the way, that was an excellent podcast with her on there. Talk about bringing back your feeling like you're at the ballpark. That was fantastic. We have a Nancy yeah, on the show. Yeah. So Nancy Faust uh, was a, a, and is a legendary organist for the White Sox from 1970 until I think it was like 2010. And, you know, you think about what she was able to accomplish. You know, she created the soundtrack of my White Sox childhood and we all go to White Sox games or just games in general everywhere across the country. And everyone has a walk-up song. Who invented the walk-up song? Nancy Faust did. Nancy Faust would see, you know, Dick Allen in 1972 take the, go to the plate and she played Jesus Christ Superstar because she felt like that song fit his personality. She was doing that for everybody and everything. She'd see a full moon and she'd do like moon over uh, Bourbon Street. Like she'd... That's what I loved about her among many things. It's like when you go to a baseball game, there's a lot there. You can just go there and just check out mentally and just enjoy the game and a beer. But if you want to use your brain at a White Sox game or a baseball game, like Nancy Faust is like, I'm here for you. I am here to fill your mind with all sorts of cool stuff. And that's what I love about her. Let's wrap up the show with this question for people that may be trying to are listening and want to break into the field you're in. What kind of advice would you give them? So what I like to say to people that want to get into it is if you're interested in it, great. But if you really want to succeed in it, you got to love it. You got to feel like it's in your bones because it's tough to break into this industry. Really tough. It's very competitive and it's tough to stay in it. You know, it's very, very uber competitive. Um, so if you're kind of on the fence, I would not pursue this, but if you love it, and you just feel like you like you need it to breathe, man, go for it. Cause it's an, an incredible industry. And the other thing is that you need to be versatile. 
like I came into this, I didn't really know how to write. I didn't know much about, well, there was no such thing as podcasts. Uh, I was just a TV sportscaster and I, that's, that's all I did. And that's all I knew. And, you know, when I started out at, it was then Comcast Sportsnet, that's what I did. And then all of a sudden, you know, the internet blew up and then all of a sudden there's, I could write for our website. We started, I started doing a White Sox podcast. I'm sideline reporting. And, you know, I think the more versatile that you are, the better, the more marketable you are. And you never know where the business is going. So if you want to be on, if you want to do this for a living because you want to be on TV, that's not enough. You got to love the craft of it, um, all the nuts and bolts of it. And that's what I loved about it. And I think that's going to help you um, because also it's, it's, it's like being a baseball player. You're going to strike out a lot. You're going to make a lot of outs. And, you know, I sent out, I don't know how many tapes or links, reels. reels. <laughs> I sent out in my career before I got to Chicago, it's probably 500. I don't even know. I got nine jobs. That's not a good percentage. That's a lot of rejection. A lot. So you have to have thick skin. And in today's, and, and there's no social media. Like I, that, that didn't exist. There was no Twitter. And so it used to be, well, I I'll do a sports cast. Did anyone watch it? What did people think about it? I have no idea because there's no access to what those people are thinking. And I would just go home having no idea. Now, you know, now you know what people are thinking. They can let you know. So you have to have a thick skin because uh, not everyone's going to like you and they're going to let you know. Uh, they'll also know they'll all, and you also actually find out if people do like you. And that's nice too. Yes, so, it is. Uh, that's my advice. Um, you know, it's, uh, but I, I, I couldn't, I, 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 if I, if you would have told me uh, when I was nine or 10, that this would be my career, I'd be like, sign me up for it. Uh, this is my dream. And I, I feel like I've been able to live out my dream. I'm very lucky. Go follow Chuck Garfine on Twitter. Make sure you're subscribing to the White Sox Talk podcast and also tell everybody else about this show and spread the word about Before the Lights and Chuck Garfine. Chuck, thanks for coming on the show. I appreciate it. Hey, it's great being with you. Uh, this is a great podcast. I'm honored to be on it. And, um, uh, much success to you and uh, come back to Chicago every once in a while. We, uh, Chicago misses you. Uh, Vegas is nice, but uh, you know, Chicago is pretty special itself. So uh, let's uh, let's not forget about <laughs> where you came from, Tommy. I agree. I miss the warmth and the feeling of guarantee rate field wrapped around you and watching the White Sox. But first, <laughs> we got to end this damn lockout and get him back on the field first off. So there's that. Folks, go follow me on Instagram at Before the Lights Podcast. And if you're looking for merch, I got it. Go to BeforeTheLightsPod.com slash merch. That's BeforeTheLightsPod.com slash merch. Thank you for listening to Before the Lights. I'm Tommy Canale. And until next time, everybody, a salute, a chin chin. Hey.